Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for giving us songs that we may praise you and your Son with one voice. We thank you for bringing us together and giving us life and breath and everything we need. Please grant us not only to understand your word today, but to apply it and receive its blessing. Would you, uh, those in this room, if you're willing, uh, pray now for a few things. Number one, that we would live our lives in the light of God's word. Number two, that we would all consecrate and make holy this time. And three, pray for me that I would have the words to say and appropriately adorn the text. Father, please show us the Lord Jesus in these moments today and show us his kind intentions towards us. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2. We continue our study there. 2 Peter chapter 2. Or chapter 1, verse 2, rather. We're just covering that one verse. It has such sig central significance to the whole letter. And as we will see, I think it also has central significance for the whole Christian life. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I begin with this message with just a few assumptions. Number one, Peter knows what he's talking about, and this is a valid prayer. It may seem obvious to say, you're reading the Bible, so it's a safe assumption, I think I can say. But there are many things that come to mind that you might want to happen that would not be valid to pray for. Lord, please give me that Ferrari I've always wanted. Please give me one million dollars. Maybe it's not sinful to pray for such a thing. It very well might be. But in general, you're wasting your time asking for such things. And even if God answers yes, uh, it won't go like you think it will. So you can pray invalid prayers because we can miss the point and we don't generally, if we're thinking that way, we don't understand what God is up to and what's really important to Him and in the world. But that does not mean that we should lessen the size and scope and grandeur and glory of our prayers. Peter prayed this prayer here. And hopefully, by the time we get to the end of this message, you will see just how massive and all-encompassing it really is. It's outrageous, this prayer. Yet it is valid, and we ought to pray this kind of God-sized prayers. So the second assumption I have is that these words are purposeful and not just put here as a throwaway line. Or a flourish, you might say. Again, just like we saw with verse 1 last week, people skip over intros to get to the meat or the, the full content of the message. And I think when we do that, we miss a lot. Many of us would be happy with the Sparknotes version of the Bible. Bible for dummies. It should not surprise us if, if that's the way we feel, that we have a small and shriveled faith if we want truths presented to us in a small and shriveled way. There are treasures hidden only for the faithful and those who are eager to find them. 
Even in just a short sentence like verse 2, it carries such treasures. I hope to show them to you. It's not just an intro. He says this because it's an opening of a, of a sermon or a letter, and there it is. Now let's get to the main point. It's purposeful. Third, third assumption is that this is for our good and our instruction. You need this verse in order to be mature and complete. It's the truth about all Scripture, and in some sense, every verse feeds into that purpose. But this one is no exception. That's why it's here on the page, and why it didn't just stay in Peter's prayer life in the closet. The Holy Spirit inspired him to pen this down, probably through a secretary. And not just so it would be a proper intro into a letter with the form that was common in the first century. These words themselves are for our good and instruction. Not just for the original audience, they're for you. Thus, these words serve as an example of how we are to think and pray, and relate to each other. So, those are my assumptions. Now we come to exposition. I want to say a few things about the genre and the context as we look at what this is. What is it? It's a prayer wish. That's what some commentators call it. Things like this. You might call it a benediction. Uh, We usually read a benediction at the end of our services before we all return to our normal lives. But that's what this is at the beginning of the letter. The blessing on his hearers that he prays will happen before he gets to the main content, which is a, a sermon or exhortation. He does a few things with this statement. First, He continues building goodwill with his hearers. He already started doing this in verse 1, the text we looked at last week. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's commending them, he's building them up, he's encouraging them, and he continues that here. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. To paraphrase one space ranger, I am the Apostle Peter and I write to you in peace. That's what he's saying. With a few exceptions, that is the tone of the majority of the letters of the New Testament. The one striking example, you probably well know it, is the letter to the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, right? That's that's how he begins the body of his letter. And maybe you could say one or two of the churches in the seven letters to the churches in, uh, in the Revelation to John. But this is instructive for us. There are problems that Peter intends to address. The main concern of his letter seems to be, just like it is with Jude, that false teachers have crept into the church and they're teaching a false gospel saying, you can believe in Jesus, you can have Jesus, and you can live however you want. Because the final judgment, that's kind of a poetic, metaphorical thing and God's not really going to show up and judge. So that's happening in these churches. This is, this is a pervasive problem. This is the letter sent to all the churches everywhere, for the most part. I mean, the original audience may have been Asia Minor, but an area larger than the size of California. All the churches, all the Christians there. This, this is a big, big problem. So he's going to get to those. But instead of jumping right to it and being sharp and cutting, and like a battering ram, maybe like a younger Peter might have been, He signals that he writes to them in peace. And out of a desire for them to have more grace and peace. This is instructive for us. I think we'd use a lot more of this kind of Peter than the younger, brasher kind. The second thing to see under genre and context is Peter is also signaling the what of his letter. He signals the what of his letters. These words are connected to the body of the letter, so we cannot sweep past them. 
I think it's actually fair to assert that this short prayer wish or beginning benediction is in fact the thesis statement of this letter. So if that's the case, then the thesis statement and purpose of his letter is very clear and apparent to us that grace from God and peace from God or the grace of God and the peace that is from God come to us in an abounding way through the knowledge of our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think that's an astounding claim. One that begs many follow-up questions, not the least of which is the realization that this is something he prays primarily for believers. If you're a believer, you have some experience of grace, you have some experience of peace, and Peter is praying that for them, that they would have the peace of God and the grace of God multiplied to them. Do you believe that that can happen for you? Today, of course, the offer of peace and grace from God is there for anyone who hears this. If you have no faith in Christ at all, you're in this room, if you don't trust him, you don't trust him for life, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. If you don't even know what that means. Yes, you, even you can receive Grace and peace from God in an abounding way today in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. The offer is there. The door is always open until your final breath, even to you, friend. But, dear brothers and sisters, this is a prayer primarily for us. So do you know that there is a multiplying of the grace of God and the peace of God towards you that is yours for the taking as well this morning. There's nothing more precious in your whole life than the grace of God and the peace of God. Found in your God and your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can know a lot, a great deal about grace and peace theoretically, theologically, and maybe even experientially. But if we're honest, we can do that in church, right? If we're honest, many of us are spiritually dry. Many of us are spiritually hurting, just hurting in general. Many of us are confused and tossed about. Many of us are depressed and forlorn. Many of us are just weary. Many of us have an angst of soul that is difficult to define. I'm not trying to discourage you all by saying that, but I'm just stating the obvious. Maybe I get to see some of that more because I'm the pastor, but if you just enter into the lives of your brothers and sisters, you know this is the case. And then there's just the exhaustion of putting on a front that pretends like things are okay. Because we don't want to bother anyone with our problems. And you may hear me say all these things and think, well, not me. I'm not dry or hurting or forlorn or depressed. But understand, brother, if that's your posture towards the Christian life, you can be the source of a lot of hurt and confusion, and additional pain for your other brothers and sisters to trumpet that to those who are hurting. And I also wonder how much you may have exposed yourselves to the pains and sorrows of your brothers and sisters if that's, if that's the way your Christian life is. Jesus himself was the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Should we not expect that the Christian life would resemble that somehow? And yet, here it is. Grace and peace can be multiplied to you. And it's there for the taking. And I think there is a, there is a resignation that happens in our hearts to just be okay 
with the measure of grace and peace that we have. And we're like, well, that's how it is. And one day Jesus is going to come back. One day I'm going to die and it's just going to be over anyway. So let's just make it to the end. Fly under the radar till judgment day. There's a sense in which that's exactly what we're supposed to do. But why not lean in and take and ask for the multiplication of grace and peace that is there for you? That's what I want for you. That's what Peter wants for you. Do you want it for you? And do you want it for your brothers and sisters? So on to this landscape of the spiritual wilderness that is often the Christian life. The Lord, it is always the Lord, speaks to us and beckons us to Him. And even in our plights, sends down the bread from heaven to meet us where we are. And He offers us grace and peace, and not just as static realities. Not just hard binaries. You either have it or you don't. That's the way we can think about grace and peace. Instead, these spiritual realities of grace and God's peace can be yours in fullness and in an increasing way. He can cause your cup to overflow. The third thing I want to say under general thoughts of genre and context, where this is, what it's about. In a related way, Peter is not just setting out to teach us some stuff theologically about grace and peace. If you ever go to Bible college or seminary, you will see that there is probably no place on planet Earth where there is a clearer disconnect between what is being taught And those realities being birthed and real in the hearts of those who are there. Because you can accumulate a lot. And it's all there for the taking, knowledge-wise. And through those kinds of focuses, there's a neglect of knowing the peace of God and knowing the grace of God and receiving it yourself. It's like going to a chef school where you learn how to prepare all these great meals and you yourself don't eat. Peter is not interested in teaching us a theoretical understanding of grace and peace. That's not what this letter is about. I think uh, a, a geography class is actually the saddest class you can ever take. Because it talks about all these beautiful cities, these wonderful places you can go, and it reduces them to a dot on a map. And maybe the name. Maybe you get a few pictures. These wonderful, gorgeous rivers reduced to a squiggly line. Maybe a few words and descriptors and pictures. You usually don't get to go to these places as part of the class. So such words like grace and peace from God, can be represented to you by the words on the page. You can look. Just just look at it. It's right there in your lap. You can read it. It's on your device. Grace and peace. You can read it right there. But are you there? Have you gone there? Anyone can read and understand these realities. And maybe you can take it a step further. And you can study these different terms and know how they relate to the different theological terms. You can build out your systematic theology and know what grace and peace mean. You can maybe know all the correct Sunday school answers to any question that I would ask about grace or peace. And you could take it a step further and you could learn some grammar and some Greek and, and know how these words relate into the flow of the development of theology in the Old Testament and New Testament. But are you there? Have you gone there? At some point, you have to step on the plane. At some point, you have to get on the train or in the car or on the boat and go to that beautiful city. Go to that wonderful river and be at that place where grace and peace are found. So understand, Peter's not just saying, grace and peace from God be to you, and I hope God takes you there someday. He's 
getting to work. And this letter, he's, he's signaling to us his purpose. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he gets to work actually helping them get there in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus. Even in the rebukes and warnings that he'll get to, all of it is because he is striving to help his hearers experience, know, and get to the grace and peace of God in an abounding way, in a multiplying way. And that's my intentions towards you every Sunday. The multiplication of God's grace and his peace for you. That's the whole enterprise of preaching. It's what it's about. You believe that that's possible. You believe that the Lord does not just do this directly to you in a, in a hidden away prayer closet in your private devotion time, but He actually uses people like Peter and people like me to say true words about God and His purposes and about our Lord Jesus so that you would, it, would have in truth a multiplication of the grace and peace of God. If that can't happen, there's really no point of showing up on a Sunday morning at all. Just go have a quiet time. So decide now, have that threshold conversation in your heart. This can happen for you. doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian or how mature you think you are or how deep your experience of God's grace or peace is. Peter and I myself and hopefully you too by the end of this can want in faith for God's grace and his peace to be multiplied to you. You don't have to wait around for heaven for it to happen. That's the point. You realize the lethargy, the, the, the callousness, the laziness spiritually that creeps in if we just think that way? I'll just wait for heaven for the multiplication of grace and peace. I'm like, well, whatever. So, Know this, even in the wilderness, with all the dryness, the sorrow and confusion, if that's where you are, if that's where you find yourself, the true water for your soul can and has gushed from the rock. And the true bread for your heart can and has come down from heaven to be yours. So, now we come to the meaning. Very simply, what is he saying? What is the meaning of the sentence? I'll read it again. It might seem very straightforward for you, but I do think we need to ask some serious questions to dig down and around it and leave no stone unturned. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We'll pursue a deeper understanding of what he's saying by asking a few simple exegetical questions. Number one, why grace and peace together? Why throw those terms together? Finding these two terms together in a verse of Scripture could raise all kinds of questions about the relationship between the two concepts, like which comes first? Right? Is it God's grace and then that creates a context for His peace? Or is it the peace that exists between us and God and then He blesses us and brings His grace? So you can get overly technical, but I don't think this is where overly technical definitions are intended. Instead, these terms carry broad significance as the combination of the Hebrew ideal or the greeting prayer wish of peace or shalom and the Greek idea or concept of charis or what we say grace, which meant in Greek culture wishing that the gods would have favor on a person. So he's taking a Hebrew concept and a Greek concept, putting them together and saying, all of that be yours in a multiplying way. So 
Peter, along with Paul, Paul has this combination as well of grace and peace. He captures so many things in these terms together. Shalom, or peace, indicating situational, meaning in our lives, internal, in our hearts, and relational peace in all forms summarized in that one word. Charis, or grace, indicates favor or bestowing of undeserved favor upon a person in a permanent way. That's what Peter wants for his hearers. All of that together and now and in a multiplying, abounding, overflowing way. These are the things that we need. Sure, we're physical beings and we need things like lunch. And We've got a member meeting after the service and you will feel your need for lunch keenly, maybe, hopefully not. We have all sorts of needs that we have as physical beings, but what we genuinely need, our real, serious, deep, foundational need, is peace from God that results from His favor and His grace. And not just favor that stays up there in heaven in His heart somewhere. Favor that results, that actually acts and works, that has power to create things and do things on the behalf of His people. Namely, in the creation of situational, relational, and Godward peace. These things have to get to work. Peace that is grounded in God's heart towards us. So that's what grace and peace mean together. You might say that Peter is not asking for two in a long list of blessings, but he's asking for, in these two terms together, the biggest, most significant, most foundational blessings a Christian could ever have. And he wants that for his hearers. So what does he mean by multiplied? word is very simple in the original, and it means exactly what you think it means. Often in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, referring to the multiplication of the descendants of Abraham, or the multiplication of any group of people, or in Acts, the same Greek term is used to refer to the multiplication of the gospel, the word of Christ, when more and more people began to be Christians. But I found a very interesting instance of this word in the Old Testament. It's the only place, other place than, than here in 2 Peter and Jude where the term peace and multiplication are used together. In the Greek Old Testament, when King Darius writes to his whole kingdom. Listen to this. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Same word. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So Peter and Jude pick up on this idea of the multiplication of peace and adding grace to it from the proclamation of King Darius. And he connects it, I think it is connected because of this instance, to the rule and reign and saving work of God. In a sense, this is what he's meaning by multiplication, that the more God works, to establish his reign and his rule and his kingdom. And the more God works to save and to sanctify and create a holy people, that process is the multiplication of peace. We might even say that the end goal of the rule and reign of God is to multiply peace and grace in an unending way. To his people. Since that's the case, how should
should we think about God's kindness? That his whole purpose, his whole intentions towards you in being king is not just to rule by fiat. Deus volt. Whatever God wants. His purpose is to multiply and increase and pour out grace on his people. So, how does multiplication then work with these immaterial realities? This is a conundrum. How can you have more of something that is not material? It's not like grace and peace are this, this kind of divine liquid or force that flows from God to people. It's not even just a state of mind that you can have. When we understand in truth that grace is favor from God and peace is inherently related to our position with the Lord and the surety of His promises. If that's the case, how can you have more of those things? In Christ, brothers and sisters, you have now all the favor of God. You have all the favor of God because you are fully pleasing to Him in Christ. That's the way the gospel works. For those who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, Jesus takes this posture towards you. Bear with me. And so when God looks at you, this is the way the theologians talk about it. You've heard it thousands of times. When God looks at you, if you are trusting in Jesus, He sees His Son. There is no more favor, if you are in Christ, that God can pour out in you. That's the meaning of grace. And there is no more peace that can happen between you and God because it's His relationship between Him and His Son, Jesus, that is the ground of your relationship with Him. So how can you have more of it? Can you be more saved? Let's get more justification. Let's add more of that to the mix to our Christian life. Is that what he's talking about? Not at all. How can it be multiplied? Multiplied. I think we see the answer in the text itself. It says, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. But in a way to answer the question now, realize that there are so many things that are this way in your life right now. To use one analogy, on your wedding day, after the pastor pronounces you, husband and wife, you are married. And you will never be more married or less married as long as that marriage lasts for the duration. You can't be more married. You can't be less married. You, it's, it's a hard binary. But... <laughs> As anyone who is married knows, very quickly you learn that you don't know the first thing about being married, about being a husband or a wife. And it will be years and years, perhaps, before you begin to think that you have just begun to understand what it means. And if you're a spouse in here and you're like, well, I never had that experience, believe me, your spouse wishes that you have. You'll figure it out later. So, grace and peace from God are yours now, brothers and sisters. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't trust in Him at all, they can be yours today. But what Peter is praying for, and what can also happen for you today, is that you would come to possess, to have, and to hold, and embrace the grace and peace, the, the grace and peace that are yours already. In many ways, this is exactly what gospel ministry is about. We're helping our brothers and sisters come into the inheritance that is already theirs. You might imagine if you, if you found that you came into an inheritance, a massive estate, 50 different resort-style houses all over the United States, one in each state, in the very best location in each one. And it's yours now, 
But you go to the first one and just stay there. You never leave. You never want to go see all of these beautiful places that you've just inherited. It's yours. It can never be more yours or less yours unless you sell it. But you can take more possession of it by going and seeing and grabbing hold and staying and living in it. That's what Peter is praying for, for you to have the grace and peace of God, to be multiplied to you. So for you to enter into your inheritance in a more profound way than you ever have. Do you believe that that can happen? So, what is, the, what is the sense of this word in? This is a very key word. As we saw last week, the word in can carry the sense of instrumentality. An example, I went to Texas in an airplane. So, we're not just saying that, uh, that I just hung out in an airplane when I got to Texas. It was that the airplane was the instrument the way in which I went from point A to point B because I was inside of it. So, the way we come into this grace and this peace is in or through or by or because of or by means of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. That is how the peace of God that is already yours and the grace of God that is already yours will be multiplied to you, dear brothers and sisters. That's what in means. What's the sense of knowledge? What what is the sense intended here? It's obvious that a statement like this has to include all senses of knowledge, but it is equally obvious as it is painful and tragic that a great number of people know a great number of things about God, and they do not know Him. You can know a great number of things about the Lord Jesus Christ. You could maybe ace a systematic theology test like Satan and not know the Lord Himself. The grace of God and the peace of God then are still very far away because you don't know Him. You live maybe with a lack of a sense of peace and a lack of of a sense of God's favor because you don't know the heart of God. The sense of knowledge intended here in this verse is profoundly and deeply knowing a person. And this makes all the sense of the world. You don't know real peace and you don't get assurance of God's favor by just knowing some cool stuff about Him. Take one doctrine that I'm sure is very dear to the heart of many in this room. The sovereignty of God. You can know that. You could write an essay on it. But that doctrine, that truth by itself is horrendous and just plain dry. Because it does not matter if you know that God is sovereign if you don't honestly know God. It does not matter if you know who God is and if you know that He is all-powerful and all-knowing if you do not know and love His Son, Jesus. I think this is one of the roots of a lot of the joylessness and depression, and lack of peace in the Christian life. We know all the right answers, but we don't know God. We don't know Him. We have not been exposed. We have not delved down to the depths to see His heart. You must know Him. You must grow in your knowledge of Him not just a collection of amazing and beautiful things about Him. Another question we could ask about this text is why God the Father and the Lord Jesus together? It's interesting because it's a little bit different than what we see in verse 1. He says, to those who have obtained the faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, applying the term God to Jesus Christ and the term Savior to Jesus Christ, 
But now he splits it up. The knowledge of God alluding to, of course, the Father and of Jesus our Lord, the Son. There's too much to delve into here, but the short answer is to say that all that is in God is seen in the relationship between Father and Son. You can't approach one without the other. So to know God is to understand their relationship. We see the perfect worship of God in the way the Son lives. We see the perfect glorification and worth of God in the way the Son lives His life. And we see the perfect giving of oneself in both the way the Father gives and sends His Son and the way that the Son gives His life in love and obedience to the Father. Jesus shows us even what it means to be human. God the Father makes Himself known in the Son. And the Son reveals the Father in word and deed. And as they relate to one another in their unity and diversity, we see all the fullness of deity. This is one of my pet peeves. You've probably heard it. There's too much God talk. And not enough Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father, the Holy Spirit talk. We need to be much more Trinitarian in our Christianity because only in understanding that relationship, those dynamics, do, can we have even confidence that we know the one true God. Because God, the Father, insists to be known now only in the person of His Son, Jesus. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't appeal to us is because it's, very, it's easy to, to put things like God and country together it's very, very hard to put Jesus and country together because, guess what? He's king. He is king. And he will share his reign and rule with no one. And he tells us how to live. That's another message. So you might hear me say all this about the dynamic between the relationship of father and son and how powerful and important it is to see God and as he is revealed, his essence, his heart, his character revealed in the relationship between father and son. And you ask, what about the Holy Spirit? He just, he just a backup role? He's conspicuously missing from this benediction. And, and actually, if you look throughout the New Testament, you find this formulation of grace and peace. Thirteen instances in the New Testament. And no mention of the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, Jonathan Edwards, not to name drop, but he and many other theologians have surmised that the, the apostles are not neglecting or excluding the Holy Spirit. Instead, they are explaining to us what the Holy Spirit consists of in His personhood. I was prepared to give you a quote from Edwards to help explain this, but I didn't want us to get bogged down. If you want it later, come and see me. But the point is to simply say that when we ask for the favor of God and the peace of God, the way God answers that is by giving us His Spirit. And for those of who already have the Spirit, this means that He works more powerfully and without hindrance to bring to fruition the things that please God within us. Think of it this way. For God to love a person entirely, to favor them fully, and to give them all peace, since He Himself is the source of all love, all goodness, and all peace, He can't do any of those things in any other way than to give Himself to you. Understand what we're asking for. We're not asking for God staying up in heaven or Jesus ruling from the throne, doing nice things for us and giving us peace and grace. We're asking for God to give us Himself. That is how the Christian has grace and peace in an abounding way because the grace and peace of God is God Himself in the Spirit of God. So, what is the extent of this request? 
is actually one of the most exciting observations about this prayer. It has no time limitations. Grace and peace be multiplied to you now or for the day or for this year or during this hard time when the false prophets or or false teachers are pervading through the church. Or until the day of Jesus Christ, so now until the end. It's just indefinite. May it be multiplied to you. That's why I titled the message this way. Multiplied to you now. It's available now for you for the taking and forever. That it's going to keep going. That this multiplication of grace is what it means to be in close relationship with the Lord. And thus, this prayer is going to be answered in a more full way than ever once eternity begins. This is parallel. This, this benediction at the, at the open of the letter is paralleled by the very last verse in the letter in 2 Peter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. When do you reach the day of eternity? And this is... Can you, can you begin to fathom the weight of glory? This is why... The song Amazing Grace has lasted for so long. And, and, it, and it barely scratches the surface on how profound our thoughts about God's grace and the outpouring of His grace can be towards us. That even after 10,000 years of the multiplication of His grace and peace, however many, to the power of whatever you want to put in that blank, it's just begun. And in... A sense, I think, the sense we get from this text and many other places in Scripture, whatever degree you can grow in the grace and knowledge and peace of God right now is but a preview of the process that will begin full tilt in glory. Thankfully, he's going to recreate us because I, I just don't know if I can take it. We're going to have new bodies. and Our soul will be made new in some sense, alive again, purged from wickedness, and we will be able to receive that multiplication of grace and peace in a way that just seems too far off to even be imagined right now. I think passages like this give us a better picture of what heaven will be like than all the speculation that might be out there. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, I don't know precisely what the hereafter will look like, but I don't think we're just going to be doing the same things we're doing now just without sin. I think God will be too busy displaying to us and proving to us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us, and we will be too busy and too enraptured with praising Him for it in all the myriad of creative ways that we can praise and worship. Him, not just in song or music, but in everything. Everything will redound to the glory of the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And not because He's extracting praise out of us, but because He is lavishing on us His grace and His peace, and we respond in glad adoration. That's the vision of the hereafter. So, if that's what it's all about, then can you claim to be headed for that fair land? If you are going there for some other reason than to give the Lord the glory that is due His name with joy. I understand the desire to escape pain. I understand the desire for some far-off home where sorrow is no more. I understand the desire for reunion with family. 
And I understand, and I've, I've taught about this and preached about this, I understand the desire for vindication. And all these things He will do. But the reason you should want to be there is to render to Him the praise that is due Him and to receive from Him all of His grace and peace in a never-ending, multiplying way. Why do you long for heaven Brothers and sisters, maybe today you can see this clearly, perhaps maybe even for the first time. You should want to go there for this. That God would multiply His grace and peace to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. And that only there can it escalate beyond the limitations of this world. So a few applications as we close. When we come to these matters, these foundational matters of the Christian life, of grace and peace, and the stark and startling hope that th- these things can be ours more now and we don't have to wait around until we die, we need to leave no stone unturned and ask how we can live in light of His Word. Number one, very simply, act like Jesus. It's about as... as Sunday school of an answer as you can get. But understand what I'm saying. Knowledge of Jesus, it doesn't mean accumulating cool facts about Him. It means, for the Christian, imitation. There is no other way to increase your knowing of Jesus. There, there is a wall that separates you between where you are now and growth and your knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus, and that wall is a refusal to imitate Him. Because until you are walking as He walks, talking as He talks, loving like He loves, or or in some sense deeply striving, seeing it as the goal and wanting it, do you know Him? Could we look at the way you live and see proof for your knowledge of the Lord. Brothers, if all we had to go on was the way you treat your wife to see if you are a Christian, to see if you know the Lord Jesus, if there were no written test, no oral exam for you to just cite Scripture, just how you treat your wife, what would the results be? What about the way that you lead and serve your children? This is what Jesus means when He says, even as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to Me. And you claim to know Him. You do not walk as He walked, or at least be striving to do so. Secondly, pray like this. Pray prayers like this, brothers and sisters. Are you praying prayers like this for yourself and for others? What you need more than anything right now is the grace of God and the peace of God. So are you asking Him for it? Lord, grant me to understand how to grow in the knowledge of my Lord so that You may work in my heart an increase of peace and a grasping hold of the grace that You have poured out on me and Your Son. Lord, please use this trial that You have brought my dear brother or sister into to work in their hearts knowledge of the Lord Jesus and His love for them that they too may know the grace and peace of God. Those are God-sized prayers. And I'll pray for anything else you ask me for. But brothers and sisters, we've got to expand our repertoire, our portfolio of prayers to be prayers like this. This is what we know God wants to do. For sure. And it can be yours now. Third, Make it happen for others. Peter follows up this prayer wish, this prayer wish that, that grace and peace would be multiplied to his hearers in the knowledge of God and of Jesus by, by actually helping them do it. In his teaching, in his, 
in His care for them, in His concern for them, and in, in His dr- drawing their attention to things they need to know and things they need to watch out for. He's actually just putting this thesis to work. He's helping them grow in their knowledge of the Lord. So do you want grace and peace to be multiplied to others? Let's act like it. What behaviors then help in that process or hinder that from happening? Do our actions towards others carry the flavor of the impartation of grace? This is God's command. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Rule of thumb. If you can't envision the Lord Jesus saying it to a hurting, struggling sinner, then you probably shouldn't say it at all because, surprise, we're all hurting and struggling sinners. And generally, we all need to be better listeners and interrupt less. It feels like sometimes we care more about being heard and scoring points in a conversation and getting chuckles than we care about imparting grace with our words. Your words are powerful. They can either set on on fire the course of life or give life. Fourth, and lastly, pursue it for yourselves. Since it is true that it is both possible and good that we should want grace and peace from God to be multiplied in our lives, since it is both a valid and welcome prayer, because that's what the Lord is seeking for in our lives, it makes all the sense in the world that you should do everything you can to make this the case for yourself. And it's not selfish, because a man or woman who is filled with the multiplication of God's grace and peace is the kindest, most loving, most helpful, most charitable person towards others. I've asked you to use your mind in this message. These concepts are glorious. But let's use our imagination for a bit. If you're a Christian, you know the Lord, remember, recall to mind that day, that season of life where you felt and and were aware, in a sense, of God's grace and His peace in a way that, that exceeded every other period of your life. I'm not talking about the mountaintop experience that that can be a flash in the pan. I'm talking about that longevity, that long season of walking in the grace and peace of God. Now imagine to double that. I know it's impossible to do with immaterial concepts like grace and peace, but take that up to twice as high. And would you consider me a madman to say that that could become the norm? I don't know how else to take this text because he says he wants the grace and peace of God to be multiplied to you now. The lowest factor you can do in multiplication with whole numbers is two. So double it. That's that's the bare minimum of multiplication. I know that we're stretching the, the analogy a little bit. But you can get there. And it's not the higher life. It is just the life that is near Him and fixed on Him. There is a serious, concerning, lazy contentedness that pervades Christianity today. We become lazy and distracted in our pursuit of the Lord. Content with truncated theology, pamphlet-sized summaries of profound truths, resting on the laurels of our past accomplishments or experiencing, experiences, or thinking that the passage of time alone makes us know the Lord more. No, brothers and sisters. Press on to know the Lord. We must do this together and help each other along the way. It's too easy just to give up and settle for how things are now because one day it'll all be made right. And the outcome for our souls is secure. Will you read of Jesus Christ to reawaken your faith? Will you invest 
the time once again to memorize His Word. This is why we have our transformational ministries like discipleship groups and growth groups. It's to help each other do this very thing. To press on. To know the Lord. Will you devote yourself to study His Word and studying the writings of the teachers that Jesus has given to the church to help us understand? Will you devote yourself to learn and imitate Him in His humility and suffering and service and selflessness? Or are you just content or resigned or jaded to how things are in your walk with the Lord? If so, it's probably no wonder that there is a lack of peace and assurance of His grace in your life. Let us be the ones who strive for the narrow gate. Let us stop making excuses and press on to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him we will find all the grace and peace of God that we so desperately need. Let's pray. Father, You are good and kind. We pray that we would conform our lives to the goals and ideals of Scripture. We would not rest or be content with intellectual knowledge, but that we would grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Himself, the person. Pour out on us, even us, Your grace and peace this day. In Jesus' name, Amen.